This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch. Welcome you to this Bitesize Bio web web seminar, which today is sponsored by Kyogen, the leading provider of sample to insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and other materials, while Kyogen assay technologies make them ready for analysis and bioinformatics report relevant actionable insights. Today's presentation is titled Liquid Biopsy Sample Handling and is being presented by Brian Adams, instructor at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Brian's goal is to elucidate how small and long non-coding RNAs drive tumorigenesis and chemotherapeutic resistance. He was first to identify that microRNAs regulate the steroid hormone receptor, ER-alpha. Brian's current research aims to investigate microRNA biology within triple negative breast cancer and to deliver microRNAs as therapeutic agents and is identifying microRNA biomarkers for obesity and weight loss in breast cancer survivors. He received his PhD at University of Connecticut Health and postdoctoral training in the labs of Dr. Jun Lu and Frank Slack at Yale University. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Brian at the end. So now, over to you, Brian, for the presentation. Okay, um, well, thank you very much. Um, uh, for allowing me to do another webinar um, with Bite Size Bio. I gave one uh, previously a couple months back and uh, audience members are welcome to view that one as well. So this is meant to be a kind of an extension of, of that last talk. Um, so today I'm gonna to be discussing liquid biopsy uh, and sample handling. Uh, and again, this is gonna be really focused on microRNA um, uh, biomarker identification in different liquid biopsy sources and then also touching a little bit about upon um, exosome uh, biology because that's becoming kind of a intriguing and uh, hot field right now and then uh, getting a little bit more technical in terms of the details of how to handle uh, circulating specimens if you will okay so um, The whole uh, background here is really trying to understand uh, non-coding RNA expression in a, a whole host of samples. And back in the early 2000s, um, this was a revolutionary concept that RNA could be uh, thought of as a regulator of gene expression. And it became a new paradigm of gene regulation, basically a new paradigm of how we can think of diagnostics and therapeutics. And um, even back in early 2000s, uh, people were profiling small RNA in serum. Um, a lot of people discounted that and thought it was just degraded junk. Um, I think there's been a, a renewed interest in this because the long non-coding RNA uh, field has taken off and we found some functional stuff in that arena, but also we have um, exosome biology and it's kind of 
really telling us that now RNA can be viewed as a hormone and it's actively secreted in cellular uh, from cellular from cells and then uh, can actually have cellular activity in, in donor cell uh, in target cells so I think for these kind of reasons um, um, it's been pretty cool to kind of go back and profile non-coding RNA uh, from many different sources and so the whole field is trying to understand how non-coding RNAs play a role in different organisms, different tissues, different individual cells, um, and it's been, things have been modeled in cell lines and we can pull out um, RNA profiles from different subcellular fractions. That's what's going on on the basic research side. On the clinical side, the more translational lab side, we've been um, basically trying to profile RNA from paraffin-embedded formalin-fixed tissue and from different fresh frozen tissues. Um, uh, microRNAs are kind of nice in this regard because they don't really get further degraded, so we can pick those things up. Um, challenge here a little bit is that it's a semi-quantitative process uh, to try to get an understanding of how much RNA is in those samples. Um, but there's been a big push to try to identify uh, microRNA and other RNAs in bodily fluids such as blood, serum, plasma, and I'll get into the reasons for that. Um, the basic concept here is that we really want to identify a new biomarker or better biomarkers for particular biological processes. So um, we have a lot of them in the cancer space, but we don't really have good biomarkers for metastatic disease. We still don't really have good biomarkers for um, let's say some neurological disorders and so I think RNA can probably fill the, the niche here and really allow us to identify uh, better markers for, for these kind of uh, disorders. So just as uh, some general terminology, you know, biomarker generally refers to some measurable indicator of a biological state or condition. And everybody who listens to this webinar should never confuse these two terms ever again. That's prognostic versus predictive. Prognostic basically meaning linking in some way the outcome of a disease, so overall survival, recurrent free survival, something like that. Predictive value is like a response to a drug treatment. And so, so you know, this patient's got a particular type of chemo. What are the markers that predict that they will be good responders to that drug? Moving quickly on to, um, I guess, more of a rationale for why you would use a circulating biomarker slash liquid biopsy source, meaning why don't you just go directly to the tissue? Um, there's a lot of limitations in getting a tissue biopsy. Uh, from an institution perspective, from a lab perspective, it can get kind of costly to acquire samples from many different tissue sources. You know, you have to enroll a patient in a trial, you have to uh, do a surgical procedure. Um, then this sort of blends into another idea, which is that patients may not be willing to uh, enroll in a trial that involves some kind of procedure that's not directly related to their own healthcare. Um, Liquid biopsy is kind of nice because there's not a lot of discomfort there. Just getting a blood draw is pretty, pretty, pretty harmless. Um, and so this then all feeds into a much larger theme, which is the increased accessibility of clinical sample. So you may want to go in and, 
can get a piece of tumor tissue from a patient that has relapsed after a particular drug treatment, but I will tell you that if those patients got some fine needle aspirate or something like this to, uh, for, for, because of their clinical diagnosis, the clinicians are not going to let researchers really have that tissue because that's very important for the next steps of learning about what's, what kind of tumors those patients have and how to treat those patients. So. Um, yeah, pie in the sky, you would love to have that sample, but you're just never going to get it. Um, and then there's really maybe no way to accurately biopsy a site. So maybe there's a brain disorder. I don't really think you want to routinely biopsy brain samples from patients. So, uh, you know, uh, there's just some, in some ways, uh, liquid biopsy is just going to be the option. And the nice thing also is that it's a renewable source. And so we can think about doing studies in a much different way rather than just um, saying, well, you have a tumor versus no tumor, or after a drug response, you can actually get many different um, time series in a of a particular patient after a drug treatment. So you get much more information, and I think that will really inform us about which are the more robust biomarkers. Um, because I'll, I'll talk about this issue later on with respect to um, variability from patient to patient. Okay, so um, clearly I've already been talking about microRNAs, but just to set in stone why microRNAs are really good biomarkers uh, from liquid biopsy samples. Kind of fortuitous because uh, microRNAs were one of the first non-coding RNAs uh, studied, so we have a lot of information about them, and we know that they're expressed in the serum, and we can actually link a lot of the levels of serum microRNA to certain disease outcomes and these states. The nice thing about microRNAs also is that they're quite stable in circulation and they're resistant to things like RNA, well, certain types of RNAs. Um, and so this makes them very stable. They can actually survive in extended storage if you have them frozen in a minus 80 freezer somewhere. And they can actually, the sample can undergo multiple freeze thaws and the microRNA will still be intact. And we have a lot of technology now to sort of quantify the um, microRNA types in abundance through qPCR methodologies, microarray, uh, but more prevalent now um, RNA-seq uh, methodologies. So the technology is there to capture these, these, these RNAs. And as a general theme, I just want to throw out that I think microRNAs are going to be better biomarkers than what's currently out there. Okay, so a good example is something like CA125, which is a kind of a well-established biomarker for patients with ovarian cancer. Unfortunately, this is also known to be a very poor biomarker in that the sensitivity is only about 40%. But when you look at the microRNA profile in the blood, you can find microRNAs that are consistently elevated in almost all ovarian cancer patients, even those that have normal CA125. So I think there's something to be said about this. There's a bi underlying biology that we're still trying to figure out, and uh, but I think this is going to make them very powerful biomarkers. And also, a lot of the biomarkers that we use, like C-reactive protein, are, are really markers of inflammation. And in that state, the damage has already occurred, and it's already too late. So I think we, I think this is the niche that microRNAs will kind of fill. 
Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this table. It's more of a resource for uh, the audience members, and you can go back and, and look at this. This is just a table from a review I just finished writing, but um, it's just a highlight that we can find well-known microRNAs such as LET7 that are known to be tumor suppressive in lung tissue because they target RAS and HMGA2, but we can detect them in the serum. Um, but in some in some cases, it's a little confusing because you do see the levels of something like a LET7 uh, be uh, is lower in, in in patients with the disease like cancer. That's again suggests some tumor suppressive function. But in some cases, we can see that the levels are decreased when the patient had their tumor removed, and so that kind of suggests something oncogenic is happening. Um, you do see cases with MIR-21 where um, it's a very well-known oncogene uh, in many different settings, breast and, and prostate cancer, but, um, but we also find it elevated in the serum of patients with a breast and ovarian cancer. So in there is a very, I think, a, a very good biomarker type uh, microRNA. But I think some of this discrepancy still has to um, be ferreted out, and I think it's a lot because we're, we're, we're profiling bulk serum sample, and I'll get into this issue. We have actually different populations of, of microRNAs in the serum. Also, we don't know about the power of these studies, so we have to, I'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. Um, the variability of microRNA levels in serum can be quite disparate. And so we have to control for those things and actually enroll a lot of patients in these trials to kind of weed out the noise. Okay, so a little bit about uh, background in, in the sense of where microRNA is found in, in something like serum or another body fluid. It tends to reside in two distinct populations. You can think of it as microRNAs that are bound into a protein complex, such as argonauts. There's a couple of um, papers talking about how microRNAs could be bound to HDL. But here the idea is that the cell is undergoing either apoptotic or grossus mediated cell death, and they're releasing their cellular contents, including the um, protein-bound microRNAs. Uh, it's not to say that this is not biologically relevant. I mean, in many cases I can think of that, that it is, but this is sort of the viewed uh, mechanism of that. And the bulk of RNA and the uh, microRNA in the serum probably is coming from this fraction. What's quite interesting is that there is another type, which is this uh, vesicle or exosome-associated microRNA fraction. And the idea here is this is more of a bioactive process because cells are now secreting these exosomes that can contain these microRNAs. And that these exosomes can then go to other cells and the microRNAs can be released and impart some function. So um, that's the two different flavors, if you will. And um, you just have to be aware of that. Maybe as a biomarker, you could be kind of agnostic about where the microRNAs are coming from because you just want to find uh, something that links to your process. But in other cases, it might be very important for you to know, well, I went want an exosome fraction, or I may just want to take the bulk serum. But that, that's, some, that's something that I think the audience has to decide. 
Um, so there are different uh, biofluid sources, uh, obviously. Um, I think I'm just listing a few key ones here. Um, serum and plasma are, are basically the most cl clinically abundant uh, biomarker sources. Um, there's just so much clinically available sample around, it's not even funny. And so um, we like to go to those samples for sure. Uh, the challenge there is just you have to know the difference between how serum and plasma is prepared. And, you know, serum is prepared by clotting, so uh, you have some micronase that are released during the clotting process from either the platelets or the red cells if if the sample wasn't handled properly. In plasma, you know, you're collecting everything and so you can, you're putting anticoagulant in there and that's uh, inhibiting clotting, but you have to be careful because those anticoagulants, right, will, could also inhibit the downstream PCR applications. Um, and they can also stimulate white cells, so you can still get some issue of non-specific microRNA release into the, into the sample. And, and the underlying point here is that intracellular levels of, of microRNA is way more abundant than anything you'll find in serum or any, anything extracellular. So you, you just want to be careful of those things and, and uh, you don't want to swap out your data that you collected uh, by, by some technical uh, mishap. Cerebral spinal fluid in urine, those are the pros to that is that you could study something that's more specific to your disease of interest. The challenge is that there's not a lot of nucleic acid in those samples. But I have to say, many companies have really developed techniques now to capture that RNA and, and can um, profile uh, at least microRNA from those sources. So that'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years with, with those kind of uh, liquid biopsy samples. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So overall, the, there, there are some major challenges when you're dealing with microRNAs from these liquid biopsy sources. Um, the big thing is there's still a lot of variation in the protocols that are associated with how to handle the specimen and isolate the RNA from that biospecimen. The, the other is that, like as I just mentioned, um, th there is generally a very low level of RNA in these biofluids compared to intracellular. Um, and then that becomes an issue with respect to isolation and recovery of those RNAs um, and effectively kind of uh, being able to really capture the, those RNAs reliably uh, in, in your in your isolation prep. Um, so, uh, and then way downstream um, when we get to it is sort of this issue of what do you normalize to when you do the profiling? This is a big question. It's still trying to be addressed almost, I feel like, on a daily basis, but there are some tricks to do, to use, um, to kind of get around this. So the overall flow, and I'm just going to talk about serum because uh, it's probably the most well-studied. There's protocols in place for this. I think there's going to be a talk tomorrow about some of this stuff, so I don't want to delve too much into this, but uh, the idea is you collect your clinical specimen, let's say it's serum, you have to somehow get the RNA out of your specimen, 
Uh, there's many different ways to do that. And uh, you then would love to be able to either quantify or do some quality control to make sure, yes, I got RNA out of my biospecimen. Um, do I proceed to then, oops, do I proceed to the RNA profiling step? And so this is a this is kind of the flow through, and you should always be kind of having some checks along each process, each step of the process, to make sure you know you don't run a very expensive profiling experiment and get nothing out of it. So step one, I think, just some general considerations. I mean, most of us probably won't be drawing the blood ourselves, but when you're designing the trial, think of some of these questions: um, fasting. We know that you know microRNAs can sort into HDL, and maybe there's a circadian rhythm associated with microRNA abundance. So, timing, fasting, all of these things kind of can influence. I would assume microRNA levels, just like they would have influenced anything else in your that you would profile for in, in serum, like hormones and things of this nature. So, I, I would treat it like that. Like I would treat microRNAs like a hormone. Um, I think the big thing, of course, is hemolysis. We just talked about how intracellular levels of microRNA are really high. So red cells do contain microRNAs, and if you lyse those red cells, um, you will have a problem. So um, you should have a protocol in place to, to note if a sample has undergone hemolysis. Um, yeah, I touched upon the interference of anticoagulants. And then really, the I think the big thing is the, the power of the study. So you know, initially it was just, yeah, we have about 10, 15 patients um, with this disease, and we just look at the serum and just try to find a profile. Uh, what we're learning is that each patient can have widely different uh, amount of microRNA in their in their serum, for instance. Maybe they have an inflammatory condition or something like this. So natural variability is high, which just means you have to enroll more patients and get better controls so you can um, have a better power of the study and kind of weed out that, that variability. So um, I don't want to go over this in too much detail. Again, this, these slides will be up on the site so you, you can everybody can kind of reference this, but this would be some kind of a collection protocol you can, you can envision for something like serum. Um, you, Blood is collected. It should sit at room temperature for half half an hour to an hour. Allow that clot to form. Um, centrifuge those samples at, at a reasonable speed, so you're not going to lyse any cells. And then you, you will basically obtain a serum layer that you very carefully have to pipette out and avoid the clotted fraction. Okay. So then now you have your serum sample. Um, and then what do you do? Well, I think the idea is you would want to aliquot that sample into different cryovials so that way you always have, let's say, five or six tubes of that same patient sample. So going back, you don't have to do a lot of freeze-thaws thaw of your actual sample. Um, and, uh, and basically all of the labeling and all of this kind of stuff should probably happen on ice and happen within a certain time frame after you collect the clot, just to, again, avoid any kind of degradation of samples. I think the most important thing is to have some standard operating procedure, right? So 
people are trained to sort of properly tag the sample, store the samples, all of this kind of stuff. On there, they should have some kind of record of, you know, the date and the time the blood was collected, uh, you know, the, the time it went into a minus 80, how many aliquots were prepared, the volume of the aliquot, so you don't have to go fishing in the minus 80 for anything, avoid freeze thaws, if you will, and then note any problems with a particular sample so that you don't go in there and profile something that nobody's really sure if that's a good sample or not. And of course, everything is stored in a minus 80 freezer. Okay. All right, so now you have your uh, clinical specimen. How do you get the RNA out? Right, so um, most common method is like a phenylchloroform-based protocol. Uh, this is even used downstream with some kits and things that are available. They usually combine the phenylchloroform with a silica column. So this is fine. This is a well-accepted method for isolating RNA. There's just a lot of challenges here when you talk about this with respect to isolating our microRNA from something like serum, you know, serum has a lot of protein, lots and lots of protein. So the whole point is you want to not have protein in your RNA prep at the end, right? So you do have to use uh, an abundant amount of lysis buffer, making sure you degrade those proteins, making sure you capture the RNA. Now for microRNA, they're pretty small, right? 22 nucleotides duplex is the mature microRNA. So uh, when you move on to an alcohol precipitation step, if you're like not using a column or whatever, um, you might want to have longer precipitation times to make sure you really capture those small RNAs. So in general, you can kind of see, you, you would have a lot of variation here because you have pipetting of lots of organic buffers and uh, alcohol precipitations. And actually, you do have this issue if you use different amounts of alcohol, you can actually acquire different species of RNAs. It gets kind of crazy. So part of this, I think, there has to be some effort to create standards in the field. Part of this would be to say, you know, I as an investigator use this particular method and I roughly on average got this total amount of RNA from this process. I think if more people started reporting the total yields um, from their protocols, it would guide others into saying, well, we should probably use A method over B method. And I think a standard will start coming out of that. Another thing to note is just, uh, this is kind of a quirky thing, but uh, some papers have been re self-retracted due to the fact that uh, they found that some things with phenylchloroform, when you isolate from samples that have the, the total amount of RNA is very low, um, you don't get uniform isolation of that RNA. You, you, you have issues with certain RNA species that have low GC content, don't precipitate or isolate out as well as stuff with high GC contents. For whatever reason, this happens only, in, again, with samples that have total RNA is quite low. Why that is, we don't really know, but the point is you may want to have that in the back of your mind as well when you're just going for a straight phenylchloroform approach. 
I think the more common uh, method people are now using is some variation of a silica-based uh, or a column-based approach. Uh, here you get the benefit where you know you could do the phenylchloroform extraction and, and then you could go on to these columns and then you could um, do all your washing steps on the column and you can loot the RNA off in a, in, in a, in a buffer off of the column. So there are some clear benefits to that because, you know, yeah, you may still have some variation associated with the phenylchloroform step. You know, it takes all of the variation out of the alcohol precipitation and all of the washing steps. Um, and the fact that you're now using a kit, you know, you have predefined salt solutions, alcohol conditions. So you kind of standardize what kind of RNA species are captured. And so that's actually actually really a, a nice benefit to that. Um, I'll talk a little bit down the road that you know when you troubleshoot these things, you can always have issues with DNA being around, and when you don't want to basically profile DNA, so uh, the columns are nice because you can do an on-column DNA digestion. It just again, if you have a hundred serum samples, you don't have to have a tube-based tube-based method to um, you know digest with DNase and then kind of add a slurry solution to kind of remove the DNase out after. So it, the labor just decreases greatly when you have this kind of approach. But I will say this, remember, every kit has its different RNA capacities and compatibilities. I don't want to pick in any one company, but I've had, had some experience in the past where certain kits are not really good for microRNAs. Um, just read the kit. They now have kits available for this where you can isolate microRNA. It's fine, perfectly fine, um, but but don't use the wrong kit or else you will lose your small RNA. Um, and this is the chemistry that I have listed here. Besides the, them being small, microRNAs have different chemistries: five prime phosphate, three prime uh, hydroxyl group. Um, that's very important. Remember, it's not polydenylated; doesn't have a cap, so. Um, be aware of the chemistry, and uh, that's uh, and use use kits that take this chemistry into approach, uh, in, into consideration. Um, so other considerations, as with any other kind of isolation technique for RNA, you know, no protein. You don't want phenol, and you don't want alcohol. Those things can really muck up the downstream profiling applications. And then, of course, you know, I got through telling you that microRNAs are very, very stable, but, you know, at some point, they will get degraded by RNAs, right? So, in general, you should probably clean your bench tops, pipettes, your, that kind of stuff with uh, an RNAs inhibitor solution, that kind of stuff. Um, and then genomic DNA is everywhere as well, right? And so... Your mindset should always be, you know, do this in a very clean environment and make sure there's uh, not a lot of areas where DNA can come into contact with your sample or RNAs can come in contact with your sample. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes on exosomes because uh, this is becoming a very increasingly exciting field to look at and a lot of investigators want to kind of study the exosome bound fraction for, 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 for microRNAs. 
Um, so I kind of already alluded to this a little bit, but just a little bit more detail. Um, exosomes are are basically a, a very, very particular type of extracellular vesicle. Now cells can release these membrane-associated vesicles of all different sizes and densities, um, and they're all kind of binned into this terminology called extracellular vesicle. But exosomes are very unique in terms of their size and the way they're actually um, processed. So what I'm showing here is um, uh, basically a cell that is undergoing endocytosis of something, whatever, this is a clathrin-coated vesicle, goes into the early endosome, then sorts into these uh, multi-vesicle endosomes, and and they could be sorted into um, a, the normal process, which everybody thinks of, of these things get going go, go into lysosomes and they, the contents get degraded, but they can also be shuttled and uh, returned back out and excreted out of the cell as an exosome. This is a very nice TEM image of this process. Beautiful MVE right here. And then all of these um, uh, exosomes being released. And the label here is MHC uh, class 2 molecule. I'll get into that in a little bit. That's marking all of these exosomes. Just really beautiful imagery. And, and actually, you can see the exosome right here. Right? These budding things that happen off of the cell. So it's just important to know that, you know, know your terminology and, and know that they're very defined. Exosomes are very defined species of extracellular vesicles. And I think, again, the idea here is that it, which is so cool and something that's got me really excited about this field, is that it's not so much that exosomes ex exist, it's that. RNA can get into these MVEs. They don't get shuttled to the lysosome so much. They get shunted out into these exosomes. And these exosomes can travel to recipient cells. And their cargo gets unloaded. And these microRNAs can then bind to something like another messenger RNA in this recipient. So in this way, you know, RNA is acting like a hormone. And because this is a very bioactive process uh, and a more directed process, investigators are getting very interested in profiling uh, the exosome fraction here under just different disease states. So specifically, they are about 40 to 100 nanometers in size. Um, and um, they are already known to be containing some biomarkers. Uh, PCA3, these kind of mRNAs in prostate cancer cells, but we know that they can contain things like DNA and microRNAs and other proteins. So the question becomes, how do we isolate the exosome from a liquid biopsy? Um, do we treat it like anything else, or do we have to use some special techniques to kind of capture exosomes? And of course, the answer is we have to use some special techniques. So first, we have to understand something about the structure of an exosome. Um, besides its size, um, you could think of it as a specialized cell, right? Um, as it has a lipid bilayer. Um, that bilayer, though, has uh, an enrichment in cholesterol, has some other bioactive lipids that are a little bit different than what's normally 
um, distributed on a, on, a, on a normal cell membrane, um, but still pretty similar to, to the, I mean, the basic function. I mean, the basic structure is the same. Uh, but what's also kind of interesting is that they do have all of these uh, receptor proteins. They have MHC class 2, MHC class 1 molecules, uh, CD86, and that might be something very important if you're studying an immune cell or an immune function. What's also interesting is that they express integrins on their surface, or they, they don't know if they express, but they, they have them on, presently on their surface. They have other tetraspandins and other targeting molecules. And so um, you could, uh, I mean, this probably helps them get taken up into their, their recipient cells, right? But um, you could use those this knowledge to your advantage when trying to isolate out exosomes, and I'll touch upon that in a second. So there are a few methodologies to getting exosome fractions. I think the one that everybody really knows of because it's very cheap, quick, well, I don't want to say quick, it's a little time consuming, but it is cheap and, and kind of easy to do. And, and that's basically just ultra centrifuge and or use some kind of a density gradient. And here it's more of an enrichment, right? You're going to get a lot of protein and stuff, but you're going to get exosomes out after these multiple spins. So again, it could be time consuming because you're doing this for already um, hours to get an exosome. So that basically will be your entire day. Um, and you have to feel comfortable with and have access to an ultra centrifuge, which in some institutions that's actually kind of hard. So if you don't want to do it that way, though that's a pretty, um, not holistic, but a very uh, broad sweeping approach to isolating exosomes, you could do immunoisolation. And here's the, the concept is that we, we know that the exosomes have specific markers, like MHC2 complexes. And so you could just take magnetic beads and coat them with an antibody to those complexes and then pull down the exosomes in that manner, I think there you have a big risk where you, you need to have some a priori knowledge of your system. Um, you know, you, you're going to basically miss some things if your exosome population doesn't have CD63 on their markers, uh, on the surface, right? And so, uh, it's it's kind of a trick, it's a kind of a problem here. I mean, if you have nothing, if you know nothing at all about exosomes, you may not want to go down this approach. But it's a very powerful approach if you're really interested in a very particular cell type that you know secretes a very specific exosome population. Um, the other come kind of other challenges if you think about it. Some of these molecules could be um, uh, soluble proteins as well, and so. You can think of very simplistically that these proteins could compete for the binding on the bead itself. And so that kind of affects your yield and uh, total amount of exosomes that you get out of the, of the sample at the end. So that's, you know, that's a problem. But the, and the other issue, there's some concern, you know, if you're really interested in getting functional exosomes out, um, you know, you, you could damage the exosome when you try to finally elute the exosome off of that magnetic bead. So, of course, there are um, K 
kits and uh, spin columns available that can uh, allow you to capture the exosome fraction. And uh, this is used, um, well, the, the idea here is it's an affinity-based approach. And so uh, we just talked about how the cellular membrane, if you will, or the membrane of the exosome is similar to, but also different from regular cellular membranes. So you can take that to your advantage and use some chemistry to kind of isolate exosomes in this regard. Um, uh, Kyogen has a kit there. I think we'll be talked, it'll be discussed a little bit later on uh, at, at the end, but it does use a combination of this affinity column with a, a reagent like chiazole to, to isolate out the RNA. Uh, I just mentioned that, you know, Again, if you're going to use a kit, just know the affinity chemistries, understand um, what the pitfalls are of that kit, what the benefits are of the kit. It's not, you just want to pick something that's very compatible with your system. So do the research up front before getting into any trouble down, down the road. So I guess um, a good protocol that I would lend out, um, I, but I'm not going to say this is the protocol at all. If it fails, well, then I'll, I'll come up with another protocol for you guys. But the idea, I think, here is we don't know the nomenclature yet for exosomes. So you want to be selective, but yet inclusive as possible. And what I mean by that is you want to do the techniques that will kind of get rid of the protein, nonspecific protein contamination, but still be inclusive to capture all your exosomes. And so in that way, I do think using some combination of, a, of a, an affinity column um, will be good because presumably it will capture most of the exosome. You won't get the protein junk that comes out with the ultracentrifugation. Um, but then, so, so, so that's, that's nice. But then what you can do is you'll, you'll, you will still use phenylchloroform to kind of isolate out the RNA. At the end of the day, I don't think you can use any step without using some kind of a phenylchloroform approach uh, if you really want to isolate out pure nucleic acid. Yeah. Okay, so now we're on to the next step. So now you kind of have, you know, we, we talked about how you collect your uh, liquid biopsy sample, uh, how you get RNA out of it. Now you want to go on to do profiling, but before you can really do that, you want to have a sense of how well did you get your RNA out? What was your yield? What was your quality? Is it good enough to go to the next level? And so there, I think a first pass, usually everybody thinks of this as a spectrophotometric analysis, something like a nanodrop. Very easy, very common method to help you get a sense of your RNA concentration and contamination. So this is a lesson, always know your wavelengths and always know your ratios and what they mean when you, when you are isolating nucleic acid from any, any source, not, not just uh, uh, liquid uh, biopsies. On the left panel is uh, a good nanodrop spec. You can see uh, a, a low value at, at your 230. Um, uh, uh, wavelength, which is going to mark where uh, ethanol and other junk is. Um, a nice peak at 260 where your nucleic acid is, and then a very low 
measurement at uh, 280, which is where your protein is at. And over to the right is a really junky uh, spec, and this is bringing up a couple of points. The first is you see a very tall peak at 230. That means you have a lot of junk in your DNA, probably a lot of ethanol carryover that can kind of muck things up downstream. But you can also notice where the cursor is placed at 260, that's your nucleic acid. What is this bump here at 270? Well, that's not protein. That's actually carryover phenol. And because of this carryover of phenol, it's actually over uh, interpreting how much RNA you actually have in your sample. So um, if you get something like this, this is a bad sample, you should never proceed with something like this. Um, also know your ratios. So nucleic acid ratio of 260 to 280 should be something around 2. Uh, it doesn't mean 2 times more RNA than protein, it basically means you have almost no protein in your sample and almost all nucleic acid. <laughs> Your 230, I'm sorry, your 260 to 230 ratio should be no less than 1.8. So that's basically RNA to junk or whatever else is in your specimen. Um, and so if it's something like a 1 or even lower than 1, that's really bad as well. And uh, you're going to have issues with any PCR analysis on that sample. Um, so Always go for the one on the left over here, and uh, maybe just throw the sample away on the right, or try to do another round of purification. I'll, I'll get, get into troubleshooting in the next couple minutes. Um, so in general, though, I have to say not a lot of people do specking on their serum samples. You have like a hundred of them, uh, you know, and it's specifically for microRNA. Uh, your, your issue may be that you have a very small volume of RNA lysate, so you can proceed without doing the spec, but um, you may want to spec just to one or two of your samples just to see in general how your how your handling of the samples or, 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 or how, how well you did basically in isolating the RNA out. Um, but the challenge is that uh, microRNA is very stable, and the rest of the RNA can get degraded pretty easily, right? And so actually, whatever you spec, you know, you'll have an overabundance, uh, or, or you overestimate your abundance of the microRNA. And also, it, it, it may just be very hard to get anything speckable, specifically for microRNAs, because they're a, a lowly abundant amount of uh, or species of RNA, so it's going to inevitably be below the detection by the spectrophotometer. So in these kind of instances, especially for liquid biopsy, people are, are kind of moving away from the spec. They, they use it as a quality control, but f for to normalize to an input by using total RNA, they don't really do that. They actually use to fix volume. They say, I use this procedure, I started with 10 mils of serum or whatever, and then I loaded you know X amount of microliters of my RNA uh, isolate. Uh, onto the onto the qPCR procedure or whatever. Okay, so that's something that's kind of emerging from that that the field. I mean, you could get crazy. I mean, if you want to do some RNA seq, -seq experiments, you might want to run a few of those on uh, the, the specimens on a bioanalyzer. Again, not too many people do this, but it's a, it's a technique that you could use. Um, and here it uses ribosomal RNA and comes up with an algorithm for you. Um, somewhere between 6 and 150 nucleotides, gives you a, a RIN number, and the only thing I want to say here is that something above a 6 
maybe like a seven or eight, just basically means that that's a good acceptable number for microRNA profiling from serum or plasma. I mean, you're just going to have to expect that when you run the bioanalyzer, you're going to have a lot of degraded RNA. So it, it's not going to look the same as a sample that's that you've isolated RNA from uh, like a cellular source or something like this, okay? Uh, one extra step I would just say for exosomes, maybe before you even go and finish your RNA isolation um, of the exosome fraction, so basically you isolate hopefully your exosome and then before you go on to the column or before you go on to phenylchloroform, maybe you want to actually assess the uh, size and abundance of the exosomes, right? And, and that's actually really important because you kind of want to know, uh, if you use protein or something as a measure, that's going to be a problem because we just talked about how exosome purification is not clean and can pull down other things. So you may want to do something like a nanosite or some fax-based technology where you can at least get particle size um, and the number of particles per amount of input of volume per mil over here. On the top panel, it's kind of a proof of principle concept. Ultracentrifugation gets you this kind of wonky nanosite readout, but then they did some sucrose density purification, and you get this nice peak at around between 50 and 100 nanometer in size, suggesting that you have a really pure population of exosomes. Uh, so then you could almost use that as an input, right, uh, or, or a way of normalizing uh, for downstream applications like qPCR. Uh, again, you could spec, you probably should spec, just again, to know how much RNA is in there and quality of the RNA, but um, you're going to have the same issues of abundance. So, you know, measure, use the spec more as isolation efficiency and quality, but don't use it as a measure of total input uh, for a qPCR application. Um, and, and then bioanalyzer is probably not even applicable because I don't even know how much ribosomal RNA is even in an exosome. So I wouldn't even go down that road. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of bullet points here in these next few slides. So I don't want your audience to be jotting all this stuff down. Again, these slides will be made available. But some troubleshooting things that I can think of uh, throughout your whole RNA isolation procedure. Uh, genomic DNA is probably a big one. Uh, you're doing a lot of pipetting. You're transferring things to different tubes. Lot of lot of potential to get DNA DNA contamination. So one thing is to just reduce the amount of uh, DNA that's even isolated from your prep. Uh, you know, there's always this issue. You always get some amount of DNA through a RNA isolation procedure because it's nucleic acid. It's just it's just the, the nature of the beast. Uh, so just make sure your phenol is acidic so you can not. Uh, so you can try to prevent as much DNA from getting into that uh, fraction as possible. Um, making sure you're really good at pipetting. I mean, I, mean I, I hate to say that to the audience, but good pipetting is crucial. Make sure you only get that aqueous phase and avoid that intermediate layer uh, uh, if you're doing a phenylchloroform extraction. Um, do on-column uh, DNA treatments if you're able to. 
if it's minor DNA contamination, you can definitely, uh, sorry, DNA contamination, you could definitely do that. If for some reason you, you run everything out and there's more DNA and you're like, oh my gosh, you can go a little bit more direct uh, of an approach and um, just dump a whole bunch of DNA into your sample and then kind of do a bead-based slurry kind of spin to get rid of the, the DNA enzyme at the end. Um, but your check should be, you know, when you do a qPCR, your minus RT, that means no uh, RT enzyme, uh, and you get a signal, that's that's a red flag. So make sure that you don't have any amplification uh, of your minus RTs. Uh, and I wouldn't proceed any further until you're sure that that's, that's, that's happening. Um, a big one, and I think we just something we have to deal with when you talk about liquid biopsy, is just uh, degraded RNA and the integrity uh, in general. Like, just, it's just going to happen where you're going to have a lot of degraded RNA. For the R, for the microRNA, you kind of avoid this. You don't really have to worry about these guys so much. Um, but you can assess this by running something on a gel or looking at the bioanalyzer and you see a smear of ribosomal RNA. That's kind of a red flag. But um, if you want to just be careful uh, and proactive, you know, you could do something like put beta-mecaptoethanol in the lysis buffer, destroy those RNases even before they get a chance to act on your RNA. When you elute off in the water, uh, for like an on-column digestion or you resuspend your pellets in water, make sure that's RNase free. You, you should probably add RNase inhibitors to the final sample anyway, just a little bit, just to kind of help you help give your sample a chance, if you will, if it's being stored for long term. And then I think the big thing, of course, is still the inhibitors of the, of, in the RNA. We just talked about this, you know, bad RNA ratios um, when you do uh, the readings on the on the nanodrop. The big thing is really the the salt carryover, or any of those organic inhibitors that can be present in in the general extract. Those things are uh, great because they inhibit RNAs, but they also inhibit proteins downstream. All your RT enzymes will be inhibited if those salts are present. So, you know. Uh, if you're not getting good signal on something downstream like an RT or your qPCR, you know, you might want to just go back and look at your nanos, nanodrop specs and see if there's an issue. And if there is, go back to that sample and do more ethanol washes. Uh, try to get those salts out of there. And then low RNA yield. I mean, this is just a very unfortunate uh, set of circumstances. I mean, you could try to help yourself by um, making sure you know you got a consistent and good capture of the buffy coat from the serum sample um, make sure you use a good amount of phenol or lysis buffer because you really want to lyse those samples up front it takes i know it's a lot it, it, it's tedious but um, it, it has to be done um, and don't clog a column like so, just you know. So if you if you think you have a too much stuff, you run it over multiple columns for the same patient, and then pull back at the end, and then do an ethanol precipitation. Um, you can, and then also don't skimp on the elution buffer. If you want to get your RNA more concentrated, you know, use what the recommended volumes are, and you may even want to put a little bit more on. You do. You could lose 
concentration. Oops, I'm sorry, guys. You could lose the concentration a little bit, but you, you overall your yield will hopefully increase. So you may not, it might not affect the concentration of your final RNA prep too much. Uh, in the short time I have left, I guess I could just touch upon RNA profiling. I, again, we could have a whole other webinar series about this, and I think this is beyond the scope of this particular uh, talk, but the idea here is you have qPCR methodologies, which if you think about it, is a little bit low, throw, low throughput, um, but really quantitative way of getting at how much microRNA you have in your sample. And then it scales up, right? So, so you have microarrays, a little bit more throughput. But I think more and more, people are even going to start sequencing the serum samples and get a lot of this information out that way. And there, it's more high throughput, but you also can find new things. Uh, and so it's still a little pricey, which is still the limiting factor, I think. But it, it's slowly moving towards sequencing is going to be the, the standard. Um, but again, when you do the profiling, make sure, know your microRNA chemistry, 5' prime phosphate, 3' prime hydroxyl. Use kits and RNA-seq library kits, right, that are designed for small RNA. And same thing for any microarray or any kind of chemistries that recognize the unique chemistry of microRNA. I still get questions about can I get, a, I prepared my RNA library using a standard Illumina approach or whatever approach it was using the total RNA, poly A, blah, 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 blah. And then you have to tell them that there's no poly A on a mature microRNA. So it gets, you know, it's a small RNA seq. Okay. That's, that's, that's the trick. Um, so what do I have left? I basically, oh, so the idea, the last point I want to touch upon is normalization. Okay. So when you talk about uh, RNA from an extracellular source, the, the thing that you want to normalize to gets a little tricky um, because there's nothing that is really invariant. Um, a lot of people think of um, RNA quantification in two modes. The first is absolute quantification, so number of copies, uh, using a standard curve, diluting your cDNA sample. The other is rel relative quantification, right? So you basically say, okay, I have this much microRNA compared to this housekeeping gene. The problem is, you know, there's no housekeeping genes, right? And we don't know what's invariant in these biopsy samples. So I think this methodology is pretty much going to phase out, and I don't think many people are going to use this, unless you really know something about your system. The other things that are coming through, spike in, so you put in a synthetic microRNA uh, into your extract and go through all of the isolation procedure, and then you can normalize to that spike in. It's not the best control. It's good for knowing how well and how efficient your isolation procedure is, but it's not really a, a, bio, a good biological control, right? Um, I think what's going to come down the line is as more and more people do the profiling, if you do a large enough data set with enough samples, you might want to do something like a geonorm type of analysis where you can identify computationally the 
a large number of invariant microRNAs in your particular experimental sample and use those RNAs and as the normalizer across your entire data set. Um, and, and then you compare you know, the test RNAs to that profile. And, and I think that's the way to go. And what that, invari what that invariably means is that we're going to have to profile a lot of serum samples. And so that's just going to be the name of the game. Finally, I just have some useful resources up here for anybody who really wants to kind of look at uh, sort of microRNA profiling and kind of doing qPCR. They're a little bit old papers, but um, they're still pretty useful stuff. And so I, with that, I think I'm out of time. So I'm going to end, and um, I think we're going to move on to the next phase. Right. Thank, thank you, Brian. Uh, this is Abhishek from Kaijin. And actually, uh, before we move on with the, with the question and answer sessions with Brian, I would quickly like to 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 show you some of the spin column-based methods that that Kaijin has for the liquid biopsy, if you're if you're doing it or if you're trying if you're considering to do it. Uh, so on the left hand side, if you if you're working with circulating nucleic acids or specifically, I would say cell-free DNA or the the CT DNA, then uh, you should definitely check out for the for the GIM circulating nucleic acid kits, uh, um, which which help you efficiently enrich and recover the small fragrance uh, fragments of of nucleic acids. Uh, there's a lot of uh, data and protocol which is available which has been standardized for this. So uh, there were some links that were sent by, by the organizer in the beginning. So please click on that and, and check this out. Uh, if you're working for circulating tumor cells, uh, uh, we have recently acquired a company called EdnaGen, which develops the, the Edna test kit. And that's, that's to help you to, to analyze the genetic profiles for the, with the CTCs, uh, uh, which is more of, uh, I would say, uh, going towards the, the therapeutic use of, of the circulating tumor cells. Uh, then uh, last but not the least, and I think Brian touched it very well during his, his, his webinar on the exosomes or if you're working with microvesicles. Uh, uh, we have developed some uh, some very specific kits if you're working with microRNA in, in the exosomes or planning to do that. So there are exoRNA easy kits available for that. and. Uh, if you're working with, uh, if you're just just at the beginning stage and just wants to to isolate the exosomes and 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 just do some characterization, so there are uh, the exoEasy kits available. And if we move to the next slide, yeah, I I quickly also wanted to 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 talk about this really exciting biomarker insights blog that. Uh, that we have developed as a community for 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 the for the liquid bio not only for liquid biopsies but for all the researchers and all of us in life science who are who are trying to do uh, make a difference in in with the help of biomarkers. So you can go check out this blog. It's it's very interesting. You what you can see is different information in the categories. For, one is liquid biopsy. One is for biobanking and next gen sequencing. Or or if you're specifically looking for microRNA. Uh, you can sign up here. The links are there, and I think you will get these links as well after the after the, the slides. Uh, I would not take much of the time, and I think I will hand it over back to the organizers so that you can have your question and answers with Brian. Thank you. 
Thanks, Brian. That was an excellent presentation. We have a few questions from the audience, and if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So one of the questions that we have uh, is, what are the issues with formaldehyde fixing samples? Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, formaldehyde is pretty bad for RNA. Um, it pretty much actually degrades the stuff. And actually, uh, well, for microRNAs, we're pretty okay. Actually, uh, it doesn't seem to hit the microRNA as much. But uh, as a general principle, this has actually been the basis for uh, what's known in the field is called CLIP te techniques, which actually can cross-link RNA to protein, but, but without destroying the RNA. And so um, that actually uses UV. But um, the point is, is that the, used to use something like formaldehyde, and, and all of those things used to get, all those interactions got destroyed. So that's more prevalent for something um, in the paraffin embedded formalin fixed tissue. Um, if, if it's if the technology is not good enough to get it over those boundaries of those cross links and the, the damage to the RNA, then you're not really going to be able to uh, kind of profile very well uh, any RNA from those specimens. So that's sort of the kind of issues with formaldehyde. Okay, and we have another question. Uh, what are other sources of biofluids? Um, well, I mean, the bulk seems to be serum. I mean, I, I mentioned cerebral spinal fluid. Um, saliva is another one. Uh, could even do stool, I guess, if you really wanted to. I mean, so the, I mean, the, any any liquid, any specimen that's circulating, you could think of it for, for microRNA profiling. Um, those other sources may, yeah, you might have to do some more optimization for how you're going to get RNA out of those specimens. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so, so, so kind of endless possibilities if you think of it. That's, that's kind of amazing. Okay, and we have another question. Um, so what is the best method to isolating um, cell-free DNA from something like urine and feces? Do you know? Or could you point them in the right direction? Oh, cell-free DNA. Cell-free yes. DNA? DNA? Yes. Um, yeah, I would say, well, some of the same techniques are, are, are you would probably be using. Um, I am not the expert in cell-free DNA. Uh, but you can capture. So I, I, I don't know if maybe Kydogen has some of these kits. Um, if uh, uh, some, some other companies are, well, I don't want to list companies, but I mean, Kydogen, Exicon, everybody kind of, they're all pushing now to profile stuff in urine and, and other things that um, may not have a lot of nucleic acid. So uh, there probably will be some kind of a kit-based approach to to capturing that. Okay, and um, we have from Kyogen that they can use the Kyamp Circulating Nucleic Acid Kits. So that's okay. Kya Amp Circulating Nucleic Acid Kits. Okay. So we have another question about um, what are the limitations of microarray or RNA sequencing technologies? Uh, okay, so the, yeah, the limitations for micro 
array technology. I think the biggest thing is um, it just tends to be uh, it doesn't inform you about stuff that's novel. Uh, and depending on how the arrays are built, they may or may not be compatible with your RNA prep. Um, the, the, the downfall to the RNA-seq is that it can be kind of expensive, and uh, you have to do a lot more work to make sure your samples are good quality, uh, good enough quality to, to, to run the RNA sequencing. But um, the RNA-seq will be pretty powerful stuff because you can you can basically capture a lot of information. I guess then the other downfall to the RNA-seq is that you need to have somebody. Okay, well it looks like we might be having a little bit of issues with Ryan's audio feed. So I think we'll go ahead and leave it here. And that brings us to the end of our seminar. So thank you, Brian, very much for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And I would also like to thank our sponsor, Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed this seminar and would like to view the video recording of this session, you can visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com, and it should be available within the next, to 20, next 24 to 48 hours. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.